and two. You can find this on page 585 in your pew Bible. And the heading of the psalm is, uh, is very interesting and I think significant. And it goes like this, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. In the day that I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake, and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion, for the time to favor her, yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come, that if people yet to be created may praise the Lord, for he looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven the Lord viewed the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. The text for the sermon is verse 13 of this psalm. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. One of them have made it a hobby and even a living in some cases to restore old things. Some people 
restore old cars, others old furniture, and still others old homes. And there are even television shows that feature contractors restoring old homes, particularly Victorian homes, to their original splendor and beauty. There's something fun about restoring old things to their original condition. There's something rewarding about it, too, because you're actually preserving something of our past, something of our history. Well, from time to time, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ also needs to be restored. The last great restoration of the church took place over 400 years ago, during the time of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, which we hope to commemorate this coming Tuesday, God willing. For many centuries throughout the Middle Ages, the church in Western Europe was in a state of disrepair. The church came to be characterized by false teaching and false worship. She had a hierarchical structure of church government, which was also very corrupt. But the main problem with the church in the Middle Ages was its doctrine of salvation. Over the centuries, the Roman Catholic Church came to teach that our works count for something towards our salvation. So if you wanted to be saved, you not only had to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you also had to perform all kinds of good works and engage in all kinds of religious rituals. And this became a form of bondage for many. The vast majority of people in the Roman Catholic Church at this time were left thinking that they had not done enough and they could not do enough to earn their own salvation. And that, in turn, drove many to hopelessness and despair. And then God, in His great mercy, raised up a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. And Luther openly challenged one of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, the doctrine of indulgences. And he did so in a series of 95 theses, 95 statements for debate. And he posted these theses on the castle church door of Wittenberg, Germany, on October the 31st, 1517. And this date marks the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Well, now, almost 500 years later, actually over 500 years later, the church must be restored again. And this needs to happen soon. Particularly here in the West, where the light of the gospel in many churches has become dimmed and is in danger of being completely extinguished. We need a new reformation. We need, in the church today, a new revival. And we have every reason to believe that God will send one. That's clear from our text. We read together from Psalm 102. 
We don't know anything about the background to this psalm. We don't know who wrote it or when. Some say it was written by David when he was fleeing from Absalom. But the reference to stones and to the dust of Zion in verse 14 suggests that this psalm was actually written much later, probably towards the end of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, that's the position that I'll be taking uh, in the sermon this morning. If you look at the psalm, you notice it can be divided into two parts. In verses 1 through 11, the psalmist cries out to the Lord. He's in trouble, he says in verse 2. In fact, the title of the psalm indicates that he is afflicted and he is overwhelmed. Now, what caused this affliction, what caused this feeling of being overwhelmed, again, we do not know, but we can deduce from the verses that follow that it's likely he was very sick. He says, for example, that his days are consumed like smoke and his bones burned like a hearth. He says his heart is stricken and withered like grass so that he forgets to eat his bread. His bones cling to his skin. These are all uh, expressions of being gravely ill. He also seems to have been abandoned by his friends. In verses 6 and 7, he compares himself to a pelican in the wilderness and an owl of the desert and a sparrow alone on the housetop. Even God himself had abandoned him. In verse 10, he complains that God had lifted him up and cast him away. And as if that wasn't enough, at the same time, he was being attacked by his enemies. Verse 6, he says, his enemies reproach him all day long. They swear an oath against him. So it's no understatement to say that the psalmist was indeed in great affliction. And then a major shift occurs in verse 12. After observing in verse 11 that his days were like a shadow that lengthens and that he withers away like grass, the psalmist all of a sudden in verse 12 triumphantly declares, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. So here's the psalmist. He's reflecting on his physical condition. He's withering away. The sickness is eating away at him. Probably he's thinking he's going to die at any time. And then he remembers how unlike himself God is. God will endure forever. He will wither away like the grass, but God endures forever, and his name will be remembered to all generations. And this gives him hope. The fact that God is eternal means that he does not change. And if God does not change, then his promises do not change, including his promise to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the church of the Old Testament dispensation. For you notice what he writes in our text, verse 13, he says confidently to God, you will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time 
has come. What we have here is a beautiful and comforting promise for believers who, like ourselves, live in a time of spiritual decline. Here in this verse is the hope of the church. It lies in God's promise and God's determination that Zion will be restored. And with this in mind and God's help, we want to reflect on these words, especially in light of Reformation Day this coming Tuesday. And we do so under the theme, the afflicted believer's hope for the restoration of Zion. The afflicted believer's hope for the restoration of Zion. And we'll see that this restoration is, first of all, desperately needed, and secondly, confidently anticipated. I had a third point in the bulletin, but I've, I've shortened the sermon. I've tried to shorten the sermon, and so I've combined uh, points two and three into one. So desperately needed and confidently anticipated. Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the church of God in the Old Testament, was in a deplorable state. The captivity had happened. The Babylonians had invaded and had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple of Solomon. And all that was left was just some rubble and some old stones. And the psalmist refers to that in verse 14, the verse immediately after our text. He speaks there of the servants of the Lord. This is the the believing remnant among the Jews. The servants of the Lord take pleasure in her stones and they show favor to her dust. So the people of God, the believing remnant among the people of Judah, they saw Jerusalem in ruins. And they saw all of these stones strewn about all over the place, great big stones with weeds growing up between them. And they looked at those stones and they took pleasure in them. They looked at the dust and they took pleasure. They showed favor to her dust. Why? Because this believing remnant was convinced that God would not allow Zion to remain in that condition forever, but that he would come one day and he would restore her to her former glory. Now we hope to come back to that under our second point. But suffice it to say that Jerusalem, Zion, was in a state of disrepair. The Jewish people themselves were also in a sad state. In verse 17, He speaks of the prayer of the destitute. That's what they were. They were destitute. And verse 20, he speaks of the groaning of the prisoner. They were prisoners in Babylon. And those appointed to death, he says. This is all a reference to the exiles in Babylon. The point is, Zion needed to be restored. The people of God needed to be restored. There was hardly anything left of her former glory. And congregation, sadly, the same must be said of the church 
today for the most part. There are exceptions, of course. The church is thriving in some places in the world. It's thriving in China. It's thriving in Africa. But here in the West, the church is in a sad state of decline and has been for quite a number of decades. She's in a sad state of decline in the first place when it comes to doctrine. Doctrine is not very valued in the church today. Doctrine, we are told, divides. Doctrine creates controversies. We need to just settle on the lowest common denominator. A few general statements of belief and leave it at that because anything more than that is going to cause disagreements and doctrinal divergences. And many churches today have done exactly this. Just go on the website of your average evangelical church today and look up the tab, if they even have one, Statement of Beliefs. And what you'll often find there are a number of beliefs that are so generally worded that even even Roman Catholics could agree with most of them. And doctrine, we are told, is dull and dry and boring. It's not practical. People in the church today are saying, just give us practical teaching. Give us helpful hints for how to raise our children how to have a happy marriage, how to get ahead in life, how to increase my self-esteem, and that's good enough. Don't give us all of that doctrinal stuff. Besides, this is the kind of thing that appeals to seekers, people who were not raised in the church, but who show some interest in Christianity, the way to attract people into the church is not to give them doctrine, but to give them practical advice for how they can live their lives to the full. That will bring big audiences, and in fact, it's true. The biggest churches, some of the biggest churches today are those that preach that kind of gospel. And this Attitude, this general negativity towards doctrine has resulted in many false teachings entering the church, including Reformed churches. Our sister churches in the Netherlands, which for many years was a faithful, conservative, Reformed denomination, they're now uh, ordaining women into all the offices of the church, elder, deacon, and now minister. The church in general has become soft on homosexuality and transgenderism. Some churches even openly embrace this new gender ideology, even flying the gay pride flag on their church property and even in their sanctuaries. And at root, all of this stems from a denial of of the authority of Scripture. Today we're told that Scripture has to be interpreted in light of scientific advancements. 
In some passages of Scripture, we are told, such as the Bible's teaching on women and the Bible's teaching on homosexuality, these are bound to the time and culture in which they were written. And they need to be interpreted afresh for this new generation so that what was true for believers in Bible times is no longer true for us today. And this, of course, is utterly false. The Bible is the Word of God. And as the Word of God, it applies to all people at all times in all places. God doesn't say one thing to one group of people. And then the exact opposite to another group of people who live long after the first group. No, he says the same thing to everyone. And if we don't believe that, congregation, we don't hold on to that. There's no telling where we will end up. The truth is, doctrine is the lifeblood of the church. If we don't know our doctrine, we will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every sea of subjectivism and sentimentalism and relativism. And I wonder if we still see that today. Do we still place a high premium on doctrine, congregation? Do we see the importance of it and the necessity of it? Do we desire to have it taught to us, to hear it preached to us. If the church is ever going to be restored, this must include a restoration of doctrine. Secondly, the church today is in a sad state of disrepair when it comes to preaching. What passes for preaching nowadays can hardly be called that. It's sad to say, but it's true. Much of modern-day preaching is not driven by Scripture, but it is driven by the felt needs of the hearers. It's not searching. It's not discriminating. It's not uncovering. It's not discriminating. And it emphasizes the gospel at the expense of the law, It emphasizes grace at the expense of sin. It emphasizes the promises of the Word at the expense of the demands of the Word. It emphasizes peace at the expense of conviction. These are general statements, but I believe they're true. And they accurately describe the state of preaching in so much of the church today. Where are the great preachers of a former day? Where are the men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and a Charles Spurgeon and a J.C. Ryle and a Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? These men preach the truth no matter what the cost. And there are so few men like that in the church today. And it should be a grave concern to us. Yes, there are still, thankfully, a few, but not many. 
And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be restored, that must include a restoration of preaching. Thirdly, the church today is in a sad state of disrepair when it comes to spiritual life. There seems to be so little genuine spiritual life among believers today. So many, it seems, appear to be going through the motions only. And they come to church and they read their Bible and they pray, but their heart is not in it, it's just outward. And where there is there seems to be so little evidence of genuine sorrow for sin, conviction of sin, repentance, and a striving after holiness, a burning love for God and His Word and His people and His salvation. Where are the believers today who are willing to lay down their very lives for the cause of the gospel? who are willing to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ if churches can't even stay open during a pandemic. What hope do we have for the future when real persecution comes? Where is the joy in worship? Where is the joy in worship in our own congregation? I'm not saying we don't have any of that, but can it be improved? Last week, there was a lady that was in our church, an elderly woman. She visited our church for the first time, and uh, on the way out, my wife asked her who she was and made her uh, feel welcome and uh, why she was here. And uh, the woman said, well, you know, I'm looking around for a church, and I've been to a lot of churches. But she said, this one is the worst. This one is the worst. And when Susan asked her why she said that, she said, there's no joy here. That's what she said. Now, the woman happened to be from a Pentecostal background. And that tells you that she's looking for something that obviously we don't offer. But I always say that in almost every criticism, there's usually a grain of truth. Was she right? Is there joy here? Does it come out? And how we greet one another? When we come through the doors on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon? Does it come out? And how we sing? Does it come out in the conversations that we have after the worship service? If the church is ever going to be restored, beloved, this must include a restoration of spiritual life and joy in God and his salvation. Fourthly and finally, and I could list many more things, but let me just say this, the church today is in a sad state of disrepair when it comes to influence. Only a century or two ago, the church as institution had great influence in society. People respected the church and they respected the ministers of the church. The church had an important role in education and in medical care. 
and in advocating on behalf of the marginalized and the oppressed in our society. The church had a great voice in speaking out against societal ills like like slavery, for example. In the 1800s, in Great Britain, the church was on the forefront of calling for an end to the abolishment of slavery in the United Kingdom and in America. In fact, the church and the state for many centuries actually worked side by side. They worked together. They cooperated together. But since the Enlightenment of the 18th century and the American Revolution and the French Revolutions, that all, that all changed dramatically. The church became more and more marginalized. She was pushed to the periphery. And most of the roles that the church played in society were now taken over by the state. And the result is that the church has very little, if anything, to say anymore. And when it does speak up, it's told to mind its own business. Church and state must be kept separate, we are told. Even though during the pandemic, the government had absolutely no qualms in telling churches they had to shut down without even consulting with the church. And even imprisoning and fining ministers of the gospel for continuing to preach. This is a sad development. And it doesn't bode well for the future congregation. When will the government next intrude into the affairs of the church? And to what extent will it intrude? Time will tell. And we certainly can't look to the courts to protect us, as we've seen time and time and time again. The point is, if the church is ever going to be restored, this also must include a restoration of influence. So the church, during the time that this psalm was written, was in a sad state of disrepair as it still is today. But there is hope. There's hope beloved. That's our second point. For as the psalmist pondered the sad condition of Zion, as he saw those stones and the dust of those stones strewn about all over the open and empty fields, he expresses the hope that one day this Zion shall be restored. For he writes in our text, you will arise and have mercy on Zion. Now, this is not a wish. The psalmist here is not saying, Oh, that you, O God, would have mercy on Zion. He's not saying that. And he's not praying a prayer either. He's not saying, Arise, O God, and have mercy on Zion. He is expressing here a statement of fact. You will arise and have mercy on Zion. Zion. The word arise here implies action. The psalmist here asserts, confidently asserts, that God is going to do something. And what will he do? He will arise. When God rises, that means he he gets up off of his throne. He's ready to act. He's ready to do something, something amazing, something we need to pay attention to. He will arise, and he will have mercy. What is mercy? Mercy 
must be distinguished from grace, although the two of them are often closely connected. Grace is a judicial word. It includes the element of forgiving or commuting a sentence. Whereas mercy is an expression of love in response to misery and poverty and need. For example, if a poor man walks up to me and beats me up and steals my wallet, and I refuse to press charges, and I allow the police to let him go, that's grace. But if I then take that poor man, and I give him a job, and I invite him to come into my home, and I feed him, and I shelter him, and I clothe him, that's mercy. And this is what the psalmist is saying God will do for Zion. He will show mercy to Zion. He will help her in her time of need. And this is something that God himself will do. The psalmist doesn't look to man. He doesn't look to the king. He doesn't look to the, the governors of Rubbabel. He doesn't look to the king of Persia, the king of Babylon to do this. He looks to God. Because he is the king of the church. And only he has the power to restore crumbling Zion to her former glory. And the psalmist is absolutely confident that he will do so. Why? Because he promised to do so. And notice after declaring that God would arise and have mercy, we read in our text, for the time to favor her, yes, the set time has come. So the psalmist here is saying, the time is now. The time for God to act is now. Why did he say that? On what basis did he say that? How did he know that the time was now? Well, probably the psalmist here is referring to Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. And there, Jeremiah quotes God as saying this. He's telling his people Judah, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. So there in that verse, tucked away in Jeremiah 29, God says to his people, I'm going to allow the Babylonians to come and take you away into captivity. And you're going to be there for 70 years. And they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple of Solomon. It's going to be left completely desolate. But at the end of those 70 years, I will arise and I will restore Zion to her former glory. And that's exactly what happened. Because 70 years after the people of Judah were taken into captivity, God raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus was God's chosen vessel. And Cyrus was the one who issued the decree to allow the Jews to return back to the promised land from Babylon. And many of them did, as we read about in the book of Ezra. And it was slow and painful, but eventually Zion was restored. And now 70 years had passed. 
And the psalmist, as it were, lifts up this promise before God. And he says, God, do you remember what you promised? The time to restore Zion is now. The set time has come. See, he's not pleading anything in himself. He's not saying, Lord, we deserve to be restored. They didn't. He's pleading God's own word. And we need to learn to plead the word of God, beloved. Nothing wrong with coming to the Lord and saying, but Lord, you said. Lord, you promised. Now fulfill that. Fulfill that in the church. Fulfill that in my own life. This is what the psalmist is doing here. And we may come before the Lord in the midst of all of the deformation that we see in the church today. We may come before him and say, Lord, remember this promise. The set time is now, Lord. You've promised that you would not leave us orphans. You have promised that you would continue to defend and preserve your people until the day of your second coming. You promised, Lord, that you would not allow the gates of hell to prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Now we pray, fulfill that promise and do it now before it is too late. And we may plead also upon what God has done in the past, for he has revived, he has restored his church many times in the past. I've referred already to the great reformation of the 16th century, how God raised up Martin Luther and John Calvin and Heinrich Bullinger, Theodore Beza and others, John Knox in Scotland, and he raised up these great men to restore, to reform his church during the 1600s. He caused a second reformation to take place in the Netherlands and he raised up the Puritans in England. And during the time of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, there were great revivals that broke out in the New England colonies and thousands upon thousands of people were instantly, radically converted under the preaching of the Word of God. And there have been other periods of revival and reformation since then. And we may come before the Lord and we may say, Lord, just as you've done in the past, will you do it also today? The congregation, we have every, every reason to believe that he will. We don't know if he's going to do that in our day. God is sovereign. But he certainly has the power. And we may plead that as he has done in the past, may he do so again today. And we may come to him and say, Lord, remember, this is your church. This is the church that you have chosen from all eternity. This is the church for whom you sent to die. It's for this church that the Lord Jesus Christ rose and ascended up into heaven. It's for this church that he's interceding at the right hand of his Father. It is for this church that he's coming again in glory. And when he does, he will cleanse her from all remaining deformity and sin, and he will clothe her and adorn her as a bride is adorned for her husband, and he will take her up to live and reign with him forever. And in light of all that he has done and will yet do for his church, do we not have every reason to believe that he will have mercy upon her even today, 
in her time of need. And so, beloved, let us not despair. Yes, the church is in a sad state of repair, but the day is coming, hopefully soon, she shall be reformed completely. And she shall be perfect, even as he is perfect. Like Zion of old, her walls have been torn down. The glory of the church has departed. The church is a pale reflection of her former self. But God is ever faithful. And he is eternal. And he will not turn his back upon his church. He will not turn his back on us because he is faithful. Instead, he will restore and he will revive. And until he does, let us not forget the words of our text, but let us plead them daily. You, O Lord, will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. Amen.